Lord, all glory is due to You, Your Creator and Sustainer, and Jesus is Redeemer, and we are so glad to be Yours, so glad to be a part of Your eternal plan to glorify Yourself, Lord, in part uh, by redeeming lost and fallen sinners like us. Thanks so much that You've made Your salvation available by Your grace through faith in Jesus plus nothing. Lord, we ask that You draw our hearts nearer towards Yours this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Guys, I'm not at my best. I will give you my best for what it's worth this morning, but I'm definitely not at my best. So we'll, we'll do what we can here. Sorry. Thank you. Okay. Hey, it's been a little bit, but we're going to be back in the Heroes and Villains series this morning. And we have been through... 23. This will be the 23rd this morning. We've looked at 13 heroes. You can see people up there like Abel and Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Phineas. If you remember, heroes, uh, maybe not heroic in the traditional historic sense, but heroes for us in the biblical record are people who've demonstrated Christ-like faithfulness. And we want to be clear on this every time we talk about it. This isn't us working up to be a better person. It's not us making ourselves somehow higher on some imaginary ladder. For us, heroic faith is simply accepting and walking in the transformation God already has for us into the image of Christ. So heroic faithfulness in the individuals we look at in the scriptural record, they are simply people who've demonstrated something of the life of Christ in their faithful response to what God was up to in their life and in their time. That's what we want. And the villains then are those who are faithless to God. And in that category, we've already looked at nine. We saw people like Cain and Lamech, Nimrod the empire builder. We saw Pharaoh, Korah, Balaam, etc. So this morning we're going to be back in a hero. Because it's been a little bit of time, I do want to, I do want to give some, some content here or some context here. So, we're putting Moses in the Exodus, and we've talked about this before. There's a little bit of dispute on this, but we're, we're picking what we call the early Exodus date around 1446 B.C. So, we would put Moses in the Exodus of the Jews up here. And Moses, you remember, 40 years wandering in the wilderness before he dies, and Israel's right at the door of the land of promise. And that's where Joshua took, took over. Around 1406 B.C., Joshua and Israel are there poised on the east side of the Jordan River. Under Joshua, they cross the Jordan River just like Moses had led them through the Red Sea. We looked at Rahab. We saw the story of Israel coming in, taking over the first impediment to them going in, which was the city of Jericho, then the city of Ai. And then Joshua, the numbers are not absolutely clear on Joshua, but 30 to 40 years or so, Joshua leads them, and they've got battles in the south, they've got battles in the north, they take over a good chunk of the land of promise, and let me see if I can, uh, yeah. So when Joshua dies, uh, they've got a fair amount of the land of promise they've already occupied. Now by no means all of it, when the book of Judges which follows Joshua, the book of his name and his life takes up, you can see that they're still fighting many of the people of the land, and then to where we're going this morning, we'll be looking at one of the judges 
There's 12 judges listed in the book of Judges, and you can see they're scattered from south to north. The period of the judges, if you read through, this judge uh, reigned this long. There was this many years of peace. People cried out. Uh, there's more years than there, if you add them all up, than we actually have in the book of Judges or that period because some of these would have overlapped. That is, some of these were regional, like the story we'll be in this morning was regional. It was to the northern part of Israel. It wouldn't have been going on in the south at the same time. So some of these folks would have been overlapped in their ministry. In Joshua's book, one of the key phrases, it's a memory verse for almost all the little kids. Uh, you choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. So as long as Joshua was alive and the elders of his day, the text is clear, they followed Yahweh. They were faithful. But then as you get past Joshua, you start getting into the period of the judges. And there's two key phrases that were the epitome of those years. And it was, in those days, there was no king in Israel. The whole book anticipates the coming of the king, ultimately King David. And because there was no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And guys, by the way, that's more and more where this culture is going. Every person does what's right in their own eyes. That's anarchy. It's not a good thing. So in the period of the judges, let's just say it's around 1360, 1370 to around 1050 when King Saul comes on. What you've really got, uh, some of the worst stories in the Bible are in the book of Judges, and you've got a descending spiral. You know, if you look at the Dow Jones chart, what we want to see if you've got any investments, it goes like this, right? And it's going up. And if you did the book of Judges, it would go up and down, but it's all down. I think the better indication is it's a spiral. And what you've got are the same dynamics repeated over and over again. So Israel was faithful. Then they turned to idolatry. And God judges them because He sends an oppressor, which is one of the surrounding nations. When they're tired of being oppressed, they repent and they call out to God to save them. And God does and He sends them a judge and the judge delivers them from the oppressor, and then they, they're restored to Yahweh, and they have years of peace. And it's that cycle over and over again. And we're going to be in the book of Judges this morning. So last time we saw, last, last message we were in was about Rahab. And you remember, this was just a crazy, remarkable story that the spies sent out from Joshua go to Jericho, that first Canaanite city, and the first person they bump un into is a believer in Yahweh already. That Rahab, who was a prostitute, the text is absolutely clear, has already come to believe in Yahweh. And we said she's like Noah in that her house, just like the ark Noah built, her house becomes the place of safety, not only for herself, but for her extended family. We said also it was impossible to miss that Rahab's story was just like Israel's at the Passover in Egypt. And just as the Jews had been spared the angel of death on the firstborn of each household because they were in a house marked out by the blood of the Lamb, Rahab and her entire family were in a house marked out by, by a blood-red rope dangling from her window, and hers was the only part of that wall that didn't fall over. So she's this great, great uh, person of faith saving faith who reaches out to her family in the midst of all the canaanite idolatry and unfaithfulness you've got rahab who's the picture of faith and this morning we're going to follow up with another gal 
Deborah. Deborah's the fourth of uh, 12 judges, and we're guessing she took place, her story probably takes place uh, 100 to 150 years into the period of the judges. The dates on this aren't entirely clear. In Deborah's day, the men of Israel are fearful. You'll see this in the story. And Deborah rises up, and she just displays this, this uh, gleaming Christ-like faithfulness at a time when the guys around her are not doing what they're supposed to do. Her story is in Judges 4 and 5. We're going to read only uh, Judges 4. If you use a pew Bible, this is uh, page 203. I'm reading from the ESV. I'm going to read the whole uh, chapter, and then we'll, we'll jump in from there. Uh, this is Judges chapter 4, starting at verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, the previous judge. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor, north of the Sea of Galilee. By the way, guys, just for a second, let me just show you the, the areas where that we're reading about. So even though Deborah's going to, she actually lives in the central area of Israel, the Story takes place up north. Here's the Sea of Galilee. There's the tribe of Naphtali, Asher, Zebulun, Issachar. The story's going to take place right up here, even though she lives in the south. This is the place that it's going to occur. So let's see. Okay, Hatzor. By the way, Hatzor is a place that's been, uh, uh, lots of archaeology has been done at Hatzor. This was also a town that was destroyed under Joshua and then apparently rebuilt because it's back on the map again during Deborah's day. Uh, the commander of Jabin's army is Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim, uh, west of the Sea of Galilee in Asher's territory. And sometimes names are helpful. The Harosheth means woodland, and Ha is the article, Goyim is the peoples or the Gentiles or the nations. My suspicion is it means more than the woodland, but it means the craftsmen of the Gentiles because these guys had an advanced technology. They were able to make iron chariots. That's their, big, their, that's their claim to fame for the military as that comes up. Uh, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, like Miriam, Moses' sister. She's another one of the five female prophets mentioned in the Old Testament. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. That's down there in the central part of Israel. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, in the land of Naphtali, and that's again up in the north next to the Sea of Galilee. And she said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots, and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. This is a, this is a good lens into the uh, faithlessness, the fearfulness of the men of Israel. Barak's the general of the army, and he says, Unless you go with me, I'm not doing this. Even though she, he's commanded by Yahweh. Without this woman by his side, he says, I'm not going. 
She says, verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You should, as the general of the army, you should get the glory for this battle, but you won't. Because God will give this general, the, op- the opposite general, the opposing general, into the hand of a woman. This isn't Deborah's. If you know the story, it's another woman. Uh, then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaananim, which is near Kadesh. By the way, when you see a verse like this just thrown in, it's not for kicks. There's a reason it's here. And of course, this is going to come up later in the story. But you remember uh, Moses had met his father-in-law down south years ago before they'd come into the land of promise. And so they're telling us this part of his descendants had moved north. There's a reason why they're here and why they're mentioned because she comes up in the story next. Okay, and here's the map that you'll see. So you can see uh, this would be where Sisera hails from and Kadesh is up here next to the Sea of Galilee and the battle's going to be here on Mount Tabor. This river valley, the Kishon, it's the major river that empties all of this area. and That's a big deal in the story. So when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all the chariots, 900 chariots of iron, So he's going to squash these guys. And all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up for this day the Lord, which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. We need to say here, it does not, it's not stated in chapter 4, but in chapter 5, the text makes clear it says, heaven fights against these guys. And that infers rain. And it says the Kishon River overflows. So from chapter 5, we infer there's a downpour of rain. So these guys come out into the flattest area they have for the battle, which is the river basin. So it's flat. They can get all their chariots out there, which is great until the, the land gets soggy from the rains and until the river overflows. Once that happens, the chariots become useless. And that's why Sisera gets out of his chariot and runs because the wheels, they're getting stuck in the mud that's developed as the rains have fallen. And so Sisera gets out. Verse 17, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, don't be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with the rug. And just FYI, in this part of the story, there's lots of elements of the book of Judges that we... If we were reading as a Jew, we get it. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. A woman would not have invited a guy into her tent. A guy would not have gone into a woman's tent. Everything about this story is upside down. 
So he turned aside to her into the tent. She covered him with a rug. He said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And some people think the milk instead of the water is going to help him be sleepy. Maybe some of you drink chocolate milk before you go to sleep at night hoping that helps. That seems to be the thing here. He said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. By the way, I've spared you an image of this. And took a hammer. Yeah. And took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Now again, guys, hospitality in the ancient world was considered sacred. If somebody else heard this woman had invited him into her tent and extended hospitality and then turned around and killed him, she would have been thought the lowest form of life on earth. Everything about the story again, upside down. Behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So as Deborah prophesied, someone other than Barak has the credit for taking the the opposing army's general so on that day god subdued jabin the king of canaan before the people of israel and the hand of the people of israel pressed harder and harder against jabin the king of canaan until they destroyed jabin king of canaan now you get into chapter five get the same thing as the victory god gave at the red sea in that context moses and miriam his prophet sister They lead the nation of Israel in this song of celebration in Exodus 15. And here in Judges 5, you've got the same scenario. You've got Barak and you've got Deborah leading the nation in a song of thanksgiving to God. That's chapter 5. And then that chapter ends with, and the land had rest for 40 years. So that's our story. I'm going to bring out, I hope you have a study sheet, by the way, uh, five different ways that you see Christ-like faithfulness in the life of Deborah. So the first thing we have is this. Uh, Deborah, verse 4, is a prophetess. So guys, she's a prophet because God made her a prophet. Now, there weren't that many recorded in the Old Testament, certainly. Uh, Their story, the prophets come up in Saul. There's multitudes of prophets. But there's only five females listed as prophets in the Old Testament. She's one of a very small number. And that was God's doing. A person doesn't make themselves a prophet. God made her a prophet And she was faithful to respond to that. She couldn't have done that herself, but she answers the call to that role. And that was the beginning of her faithfulness. So God says, you're my spokesman. Remember a prophet in that day would get words from God that others didn't get. That's why she calls Barak. I've got a word from God for you. This is what you should go and do. Prophets also usually would speak to God for the people as well. But she's faithful and she starts in the role God gave her she couldn't have asked for. God gave her the role of prophetess. One of the things we want to make sure for ourselves is there are so many things about your life and mine that we have absolutely no say in. So if you're a believer, you have spiritual gifts and you had nothing to do with what those spiritual gifts are. God gave them. The Spirit gave them. 1 Corinthians 12 is very clear on this. Ephesians 4 is clear on this. You didn't, you didn't earn them. God gave them to you. You didn't choose who you were born to. You didn't choose when you were born. You didn't choose how tall you are. There's so many things in our life we didn't choose. They're givens. They're given to us. And the beginning of our faithfulness in the light of Deborah 
is simply are we being faithful with what God's given us in the time God's put us and in the place God's put us? That's the real question. She's given the gift of being a prophet and that's where she starts. And we want to make sure for ourselves because this is, of course, this is where the rubber meets the road. Are we being faithful with what God's given when He's given it to us in our time and in our place? That's what Deborah was doing. That's how all of this starts. God made her a prophet, a prophetess, and she took it from there. She's also, and I love this, there's so many elements about her story that I absolutely love. She's faithful to serve as a judge with the little that she has. Now I hope this struck you, but in the story it says she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. So think of this. Uh, she does not have an office. She does not have a walnut or an oak desk. Guys, in these days, where was business, official business and judgment, where was it take place? It wasn't under palm trees. It was in the gate of the city. And she's not in the gate of the city either because she's not a normal leader. And she probably didn't have standing of some sort to operate in the gate of the city. So she's out hanging out under a palm tree. That's her office. She keeps office hours. And people know where they can find her. And people are going to her because they know where she's at and they're going to her for judgment. And I love this. You know, on one hand, the thought of sitting under a palm tree as your office, you're this important person. You're the person God's speaking to on all the earth of that day. It's this woman and she's hanging out, no office, no gate, no city gate. She's hanging out under a palm tree. But you know, do you remember the story of Abraham in Genesis 18? When God came and met him, where was he hanging out? He was hanging out under the shade of a tree. You know, this church supports a ministry in Haiti, an orphanage, and you remember where that orphanage started? Some of you know the story. Nicole Judene started an orphanage under the shade of a tree. I love this for this reason. She didn't have much. She had a palm tree. And she was faithful. And people knew where they could come and get her. I wonder what the palm trees are God's put in your life and mine. Do you know what I mean? She was faithful with the little things she had. She didn't wait till somebody said, here, come and sit in the gate of the city. She didn't wait till she had a nice expensive office. She hung out where she was available and she was faithful there with the little thing God had given her. One of the things you'll see in the New Testament too, by the way, is oftentimes when God does something, when the leadership is inept and faithless, God does something from someone outside that group. So it's not by accident when the gospel stories start. It's not someone in the temple who speaks. It's John the Baptist, and he's not part of the temple group. He's a priest, right? But he is a voice in the wilderness because the people in the temple, they're not listening to God. And in Deborah's day, when the men are characterized by fearfulness, God's speaking through the voice of a female prophet who's hanging out under a palm tree. You've got to love this story. She's doing much with little this is the same thing that comes up by the way in the book of uh, Zechariah and when the second temple is built in Zechariah people that seen the first temple knew something about the glories of Solomon's temple when they saw the foundation for the second temple built some people were cheering they're so glad and other people were weeping they're so sad because they get it this is not going to be Solomon's temple and God reproves them and says do not despise a day of small things if it's one of us with God, we're a majority. 
It's amazing what God can do with one person who's simply committed to be faithful in the time and the place God puts us with what God gives us to do. That's exactly what, what Deborah was doing. I, I love that. Don't bemoan the little that God gives us. Make use of the palm trees, whatever those are. Uh, the other thing, the third thing is that she was faithful in judgment. Verse 5 says people came to her for judgment. The guy, she could have been just a prophetess and just spoken for God. Judging didn't have to be connected to this, but it was because people knew they could trust her judgment. She was just and she was fair. Now, one of the things in the Torah, the first uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, when God gave the law to Moses, God said, I don't want you to be partial in judgment. And partial meant you don't change your decision based on someone's wealth or on their poverty. You don't say yes in judgment to this person because they're wealthy. You don't say yes to this person because they're not wealthy. God said you use impartial judgment. And that's what Deborah was doing. People knew they could trust her. She was impartial in her judgment. She didn't esteem people too highly or too lowly. She treated everyone the same in her judgment. They knew they could trust her. The fourth thing is she was faithful in courage. I love this one too. When Barak says, it's bad when the leader of your army says, I'm not going unless you come too. That's bad. To the woman especially. <laughs> the guy that's leading your troop says, I'm not going unless I can hide behind your skirt. This is not inspiring what's her response she says i will surely go with you there's no hesitation either no problem she says i'll go now what gives her such confidence do you think her confidence is in barak or the army of israel i don't think so god has spoken and god has said i'm going to give you that guy in the army her confidence is in god and this is the thing your hopes and mine will tend to rise and fall to the degree that they're based on ourselves and other people instead of on God. If our hope is based on God and God's words and God's promises and God's character, what you'll find is your hope will tend or should vacillate far less than when our hope is set on people that are frail just like us. So she's courageous because she can afford to be. God has spoken and God says, I'm going to take these folks down. You're part of my plan, but I'm going to take them down. You can count on me. And so she's free to be courageous because she's not trusting in Barak or the army. She's trusting in God. And the last thing is this, and this may be at the end of the day, I think in my own mind, this is one of the final tests of faithfulness. When God, when God gives a great victory, when God does a great work, who do we give the glory to? Who do we honor? So in Deborah's life, Deborah and Barak, they sing in chapter 5. They lead the people in singing. And in verse 3, they dedicate the song, the praise, the glory, the thanksgiving. They dedicate it to Yahweh, to the Lord. That's the thing. At the end, when God's given the victory, they give God the honor. They say, God, you did this. We didn't do this. Now, it's interesting. If you read chapter 5, they go through. Deborah says, Deborah rose. I rose up. I was a mother in Israel. I rose up. She names herself. And she names the parties who were part of God's army, of God's effort. 
because God used those folks. And she gives them credit, which is great. But at the end of the day, she says, God, you did this, and these are the people who participated in what you did. At the end of the day, when God gives some kind of victory, who do we give thanks and praise to? Because at the end of the day, Christ-like faithfulness, remember, is always about giving God his due. It's always our response to God. God's always the initiator. If we get to play a part, that's great. But God's the initiator. He's the power. He should get the glory. And that's what you see at the end of, of Deborah's, the account of her life here, is that she praises God for what God did. She mentions the others that participated, but God gets the glory at the end of the day. So you got this great, to me, really a highlight in the Old Testament of Christ-like faithfulness in the person of Deborah. Now I want to bring a, a totally different take on this story just because of the time and the place we live. So here's a question for you. Deborah is a prophetess and she's a judge in Israel, absolutely. She's a leader in the nation of Israel, absolutely. And she is a model of Christ-like faithfulness, absolutely. Is Deborah, therefore, a model for leadership in families and the church of Jesus today? Now, the reason I ask this question is because that's a proposition that's put forward by evangelical Christians that you and I would recognize as brothers and sisters in the faith and whether you call it uh, Christian feminism or if you call it egalitarianism, it's the same thing. And the argument is this. It's basically that after the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the role distinctions between male and female are over. There's a couple of verses that are used for this. One's in Galatians. There's neither male nor female, free nor slave, Scythian, etc., etc. But we're all one in Christ. So there's an argument being advanced, and in the argument, Deborah is one of the linchpins of the argument that Deborah was a leader in the nation of Israel. Women should be, like men, leading in their households today and leading in the church today. No distinction in roles between men and women, Deborah being the primary example out of the Old Testament. So a good question for us today is, is Deborah a model for the church? If you go back, uh, let me say too, if you've got a study sheet, we're speaking narrowly here this morning. I've spoken on this topic a couple of times. There's a couple of references on the study sheet to messages that were given earlier. If you want to look this up, I'd encourage you to. And by the way, I have tons of literature. This is a huge issue, and it's been raging in the evangelical church for decades. I've got lots of books. I'd be glad to loan any of them to you if you want to follow up on this. Um, in creation account, it's clear that Adam is the leader. And we, Genesis 1 through 3, it's very clear. He's made first. Eve is created second as his helper. Adam names Eve. This is significant in Scripture because the one in authority is always the one that gives the name. It's also true that when uh, God approaches Adam and Eve after the fall, Eve sinned first, but God doesn't go to Eve. He goes to Adam because Adam was in charge and the fall happened under his watch. So it's clear in the creation account Adam's the leader. He's the leader of his wife. He's the leader of the family. You go to Romans 5. He's the head of the human race. He's the leader of the human race. Now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, if we want to make an argument that, that the role distinctions have changed, it's an uphill battle. If you go to 1 Corinthians 11, 
Paul's talking about this, by the way, in the context of women praying and prophesying in the church. That brings certainly brings up the example of Deborah. Women praying and prophesying in the church. Paul makes an argument in which he says, no, there's still this hierarchy of authority and responsibility in which it's the Father, it's Christ the Son, it's the husband, and then it's the wife. And that's true in the family and it's true in the church. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1, when it brings up the qualifications for leadership in the church, it's always exemplary males. So if we're going to say Deborah's a model, she's certainly a model for Christ-like faithfulness. What is, in my view, inarguable is that she is not a model for leadership in the church as a paradigm for women leading in the homes and in the church. This is another thing, and... um, and I say this without diminishing, which I'll, I'll point out more in just a second. This doesn't diminish Deborah, but what you'll find in the Old Testament is this. If you see women leading men in the family or the nation, it's a sign of the failure of the men leading, and it's a judgment from God. Now, the clearest passage on this, this is on your study sheet, is Isaiah 3, verses 1 through 12. In that passage, Isaiah is prophesying the days that would come in which God would judge Israel through Babylon. And one of the things he said is, they're going to come in, and you remember there's, there's three different times in which the Babylonians export Jews out of Israel. 605, 596 or 7, and 586 B.C. And in each time, what the Babylonians do is they take leadership out of Israel so that they won't revolt. And it's that context that's behind Isaiah 3. And so in Isaiah 3, God says, I'm going to take the military leaders, I'm going to take the elders, I'm going to take the priests, I'm going to take all the men who are leading in the nation. What's going to be left? God says, capricious children and women will be your leaders. This was an indictment. It's in my judgment, I'm going to remove anyone who's remotely qualified to lead You're going to be led by capricious children, not just children, but by capricious children. That wouldn't be any of our children, I'm sure. And women, it's an indictment on the nation. You're going to be judged so severely there will be no adequate male leadership left. If you read the rest of Isaiah, the judgment passages, you'll see that this gets reinforced again and again. So, children and women who would normally be served by the leadership of husbands and elders and priesthood and military leaders and kings and all those they appointed they won't they wouldn't be around and that's an indictment it's a judgment on male leadership and it's indictment on the nation so let me ask you another question if that's the case does that diminish deborah as an example of christ-like faithfulness so the fact that Deborah in leadership is a sign of God's judgment and an indictment of men generally. Does that diminish the degree to which she's an example of Christ-like faithfulness? I hope you'd say with me, not at all. In fact, in my own mind, I think it elevates it. I think it elevates her example of Christ-like faithfulness. And this is the deal. I forgot to mention this on the front end. This is my hope for any or all of us. The takeaway is this. It takes a particular humility and wisdom and circumspection to step into a role we are not particularly suited for and didn't ask for in the first place. That Christ-like faithfulness always requires humility. That should go without saying. 
but to fulfill a role that we're not ideally suited for because no one else is, that requires an additional level of humility and circumspection. And let me give you some examples. Wives leading in the home when husbands are gone or incapacitated or delinquent. A wife doing what a husband should because it's not being done. That requires not only a willingness, but a particular humility. Uh, Mothers discipling their children in the faith when dad is gone or isn't a believer or is negligent in those discipleship responsibilities. That's a role, a primary role she's not specifically called to, but may find that she has to fill because a, a father isn't willing to, isn't able to. A growing children. I'm sure all of us have known growing children who have had to take on responsibilities or burdens financially or otherwise in families where, for one reason or another, they simply aren't being fulfilled otherwise. Bills need to be paid or moms or other children need to be taken care of. This is far less true today, but guys, in my lifetime, I've spoken to people who were given away as children because their families couldn't feed them. They were sent, this is in Kansas, (laughs) this is in the lifetime of some of us here, they were given to farmer families who could feed them because their own families couldn't feed them. So this is an ancient history. This still goes on today. Or employees who take up the slack superiors have left, and they do so not because they're getting additional money or bonuses, they're doing so for the good of their clients, their customers, and for the benefit of the company as well. You may find yourself in a role you didn't ask for in a role that you say, I'm not the best equipped for this. I shouldn't be the one doing that. But you may find nevertheless there may be times in which you have to step up and do something that you're not ideally suited for, that someone else ideally would be doing instead of you. And when we do that, we simply want to do so not only with humility, but with a circumspection so that when someone more qualified comes along, we can say, hey, I'm glad you're here. And here it is. Uh, when I was uh, oh, probably 19 or so, uh, I had about a year in Topeka in which I was working as a roofer. And I was making good money until the snow fell and the roofing season was over. And I got a call out of the blue from an old teacher of mine at Hayden High School. And they said, uh, Mike, can you come and teach freshman and sophomore algebra and geometry? Like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> why are you, th- why would you have called me? Where did that come from? Why in the world would you have called me? And I'm thinking, what? What's the deal? They said, basically, we're desperate. We're desperate. We can't. <laughs> that was not a joke. <laughs> they were desperate. They were desperate. They'd had to fire a teacher. There were fires being set in classrooms. The teacher was being abused. This is in a good Roman Catholic high school, by the way. People just like I grew up with. Um, And I thought about it. I I said, let me get back to you. And I said, sure, I will. Well, you know, I hadn't looked at algebra and geometry for years. So I had to bone up as fast as I could. Father Santa told me when he goes in, he says, you cannot smile in these classrooms. You make them say, sir, you make, I mean, right, it's like the army, because you got to get these guys back, back down. And so I think it was two, two and a half months, Christmas through February or March, I taught algebra and geometry to freshman, sophomore students at Hayden High School. 
And I would tell you, I loved it, and their grades improved. And I had good classroom order, and it was great. And then they said one day, Mike, we found your replacement. I was like, hooray, right? I'm not qualified to do this. You know, I was only doing it because they had to get somebody. They got a qualified teacher to come in. Thank God for me. Thank God for her. Thank God for the students. I went back to roofing. I made better money and I got on with, with my life. It was like, it was good while it lasted. It was a crazy fit out of the blue, but something had to be done. You may find yourself in one of those situations. That was Deborah's situation. She shouldn't have needed to be leading, but she was faithful. She was faithful with little. She was courageous because she was trusting the Lord. And that should be the thing for us. And that's where I hope we land at the end of the day on this. Do you and I, do we feel entitled to whatever level of responsibility, respectability, whatever we might call it, leadership? Do we feel entitled to that? Or do we say, nope, it's been a privilege to serve? In Christ's name, in Christ's cause, in God's kingdom, is it a privilege to serve or are we entitled? Do we see our roles in life as entitlements or privileges? And do we serve the Lord's interests in our own spheres of influence and responsibilities for ourselves or for Him? Who are we serving at the end of the day? If it's God's plans, God's people, God's kingdom that are the priority we can afford to serve in one role or another happily. It doesn't matter what the role is. We can be raised up like Deborah was. Or we can be diminished like John the Baptist was and call it all good. In John 3, when John's followers went to him and they said, hey Lord, John, we got problems, man. More people are following Jesus than are following you and you're the man. And John says, I'm the friend and he's the bridegroom. He must increase and I must diminish. And he says, and I'm good with that because I know my role. And that should be us too. That whatever's in it, whatever God's call is, what has He gifted us with? What are the palm trees He's given? Are we simply being faithful where we're at with what we've been given in the time and the place God's given us? Well, guys, if you would, uh, stand and let's read this together. Worship team will come up and get their stuff in order again. And uh, let's read this. This is from John 3, and it's a great reminder. Reminder to us of of uh, our take on what God's up to and our role in what He's doing. Let's read this together. John 3. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 